this week on the Revenge of the 80s Kids. Uh, right, so the wheel of fate has spun once more, and then it said it was me. So oh, here, Justin, really? anything to say? He's a he's a misogynist. He's a, he's a, he's yeah. a sort of racist. He's a bully. A heart balding kind of crazed individual with his odd broken speech, like eating a Quality Street or something. There is again something subtle about the design of his features that shows he's not quite a nice guy. Like a visual metaphor, ripped grand guy. He's just a horrible lecherous couple. He was he's a narcissist. You know, a human figure. You know, you can believe that kind of, he's just selfish and lecherous. But look at what it's allowed me to do. Got his own spin-off series, so there we go. I'm going to say a little bit of something here, and this is going to upset a few people, but I'm going to have to say it anyway. (laughs) Which is just hilarious. He does very little, but what he does is absolutely brilliant. And spoilers, everyone. A hundred random people that you've just hoovered up off the street. Um, and, so, and, and a very creepy old lady who runs a hotel as well, which is obviously compulsory in any good thing. So, yes, uh, you've got, you know, women draped around in kind of ludicrous costumes, not very practical costumes. It might be skimpy outfits, but it's skimpy outfits all around, people. And, and so we're all mad together. My goodness, that's brilliant. Um, it's strange. You don't want to come in and sort of muscle your way in and be like, hey, I'm going to enjoy this too, and you can all go away. It is stunning. Yay! Oh, well, we're not that awkward then. We're nearly there. So, so I think, I, for some reason or another, I didn't really give it much consideration. Um, the, we've got a list thing that will pull us all out of a hat in a random order. It doesn't fit my criteria for choosing things. Well, you'll find out in a bit. <laughs> Fair enough. What a brilliant concept for a film. It's like a, a series of set pieces, one after another. The most chickiest chick flicks ever. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, um, the stuff with the sheep is is hilarious. Um, uh, well, this is my slight cheat entry, as I felt I could wiggle one in there. I think this might cause some raised eyebrows. No embarrassing noises, but some raised eyebrows. Well, nevertheless, yes, it, it left a very memorable impression. Uh, and this is actually the position I had some difficulty with, but in the end, I came down on the side of... Charming and wonderful and brilliant. The trilogy that we can all agree on. Um, and certainly, you know, the technical side of it, I'm more pleased with the stuff now. And you keep doing it all the time. And weirdly, you would think people wouldn't be able to anatomically do that, but they, they can. But at the same time, I find it all very, oh, why is this happening? Oh, don't like this. Oh, um, and then we came to the conclusion that the actual ending is far more satisfying than that. Kind of shakes you about, violently throws, vomits colour at you and kind of hideous tastes at you and, you know, everything. And you are left kind of a bit bamboozled. And tell us all about it. Ooh, awkward moment noise. Awkward moment noise. What's this? Milk? Two sugars? This isn't my cup of tea. Wow. Brave choice and more memorable for that. 20 minutes to put the fire out was all worth it in the end because it's the last one's ever done. They're all CG now. They're all fake now. Evil CGI. These days they would just be CGI, wouldn't they? They're, it would be shot with a with a man in a blue lycra suit with ping pong balls on, on his, all over his body. Uh, so there we go. So uh, it, And there's something kind of ironic about that, in a way. Revenge of the 80s, kids, has been rated P for podcast.
Uh, yes, indeed. Can't Time I do... has come. Oh, I was going to do my thing. I was poised. Oh, you're going to do your thing? Yes. Do your thing, Ian. Oh, it wasn't going to be much. I was just going to go... Gentlemen, we have a problem. We have no time for a problem. We've got too much to do. Must recite our top five films from the 90s. The rules, of course, are unchanged. Each of us don't know what each other's picked. So, as we descend down through our list, there's a chance of a crossover, which will lead to social awkwardness, embarrassment, and general bad feeling. And, by a process of editing, an awkward noise I shall put in under our talking. So, as time is of the essence, I suggest we press ahead. Uh, Mr. Stableford, uh, has the random generator selected its first victim? Yes, indeed it has. But I should also point out that as we don't have much time, we're going to have to be quite quick. And it means that if we do have a crossover, social awkwardness will be reduced by the exact amount that it saves us some time in the long run. So, you know, call it an upside. Now, for every round, so this is position number five, we've got a list thing that will pull us all out of a hat in a random order. And uh, the list randomizer has chosen Ian to go first. So, Ian, what is your fifth most favourite film of the 90s and why, sir? Uh, well, this is my slight cheat entry, as I felt I could wiggle one in there. This is not, uh, not technically a generally released film, although it has had a cinema release. Uh, it, it's a film, not a long film, but it has everything. It has car chases, romance, plots, conspiracies, uh, sheep theft, porridge, cleaners. It is, of course, Wallace and Gromit's A Close Shave. I ah, right, okay. Good. Yes, I, I, I've I, said before, I lived in Bristol, and I was right there at the time that... I was definitely there when Close Shave was going off, and um, yes, in Bristol, it's, of course, where Armour Animation is situated. So there's a huge Wallace and Gromit kind of thing, and the city's immensely proud of it. The Christmas decorations are Wallace and Gromit-themed when you get in the, in the streets at night. Uh, obviously, we take those down when it's not December, but yeah. And it was just that special year in the 90s where Close Shave came out. Uh, because it just, for me, it just seemed to sum up the whole of that year of Christmas. Because it's such a nice gem of a movie. It's only 30 minutes long, but it feels longer. They pack so much in, including so many gorgeous puns. I think whilst, you know, the first, the first Wallace and Gromit film is definitely kind of a student, a very good student film. The second film is, is definitely worthy of an Oscar. But I just felt it really came together and this was the peak. This was the summit of Wallace and Gromit. They were never this good ever again. This was the moment with their, with their wonderful robot. So many film parodies happening in this one little gem that was on at Christmas. And for me, it was just, it was just kind of the vibe of Christmas of, of this being, you know, I went and watched Wallace and Gromit, why not? It was Christmas and it was just so good. Had to go watch it again. I think next day I watched it again as well. It was just charming and wonderful and brilliant. Gentlemen. Uh, so I just want a, a, a query here. Uh, not, not, uh, you think that this is better than the Weir Rabbit film, which is coming up in the next few years? Uh, yes. Overall. On oh, balance. Right, okay. Okay, fine. Well, the rabbit is terrible, but I, I think close shave. I mean, it's purely subjective. Possibly living in Bristol at the time gave me a sense of proprietary about it. I didn't have when I was living in Australia when the Weir Rabbit came out. Weir Rabbit's a bit long, I think. I think right. I, th I think I think the start the pacing of this because it's a gentle pace trip when it st when it starts. It's just you know they're going out there cleaning windows. There's, there's no mad car chases to start with. It, it earns those action pieces of running on a conveyor belt in front of a giant mincing machine. And Sean the Sheep got his own spin-off series. So there we go. Yes. 
Justin, uh, you go ahead. What's your uh, what, what, what's uh, your sorry, thoughts yeah, on this we've, uh, film? We've, we've touched on Wilson Grant before, and I think you know it's one of it's one of the things that I'm immensely pleased that we have as a British thing. You know, I'm enormously fond of Wilson Gromit, and a close shave is fantastic. I loved every second of that. I I agree actually. I prefer this probably. I'm not sure about the wrong trousers. My, I'm not sure where, where I'll be able to choose what's my favourite, but I. I think it's absolutely cracking. It's and it does pretty much, you know, absolutely. The, the first Wallace and Gromit, um, when you look at that, they were really finding their way. But I think this is one where they really nailed it. Yes. You know, they got they got everything. The character, the stuff with the sheep is is hilarious. It's just incredibly charming. But also, like you're saying, for kind of geek references, ahoy! It's just. This is clearly made by people who love film. And so it's just a joy from beginning to end, really. That's all I can say. It's just fantastic. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I actually have only ever seen it uh, when it was on television, this, this film. I don't suppose I'm really uh, the target audience because my favourite thing that Ardman have had anything to do with is uh, Flushed Away which obviously not one for the the Aardman purist due to it being crossed over with evil CGI. But yes, I, I can... It, it's I mean, quite yeah, that's been cut for your cynicism at all? Well, I don't know about cynicism. I just... Um, I don't know. I, I, I think maybe it's a sense of humour that I'm not quite in tune with. I don't know. I think that's probably what it is. I mean, it's fine. I don't hate it. Uh, <laughs> but it's just... But I, no, I mean, I don't hate it. I don't even dislike it. In fact, no. I like it. But I just, it's, it, yeah, I don't really, I don't have a warmth or a fondness of, ah, ah, Wallace and Gromit, ah. <laughs> um, the, the thing that I take away from it is that there are many people who have that strange grin that Wallace has so often. And you look and you go, oh, look, more cheese, Gromit. And you keep doing it all the time. And weirdly, you would think people wouldn't be able to anatomically do that, but they they can. So, <laughs> yeah, that's 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 just uh, yeah. So I, I I did see it and I was amused, but I can't really talk about it much more. For I saw it that once and then it was gone, like eating a quality street or something. But it was it was a, was it a fine chocolate to have on Christmas Day though, wasn't it? You know. Yes, I mean it's a nice thing. Yeah, I mean I, I, some of the stuff that they've done, Hardman, uh, that is subsequently. I've, I've found uh, to be very amusing indeed. Um, and indeed, I watched Arthur Christmas last year. I thought that was jolly good as well. A bit more back to the traditional sort of thing. So, yes, they're definitely a, a homegrown uh, quality comedy talent. Um, I think it might be that because it takes... Obviously, it's craftsmanship. Craftsmanship is the, the hallmark. They, they can't do too much all at once because they try, like, mixing it up and using things which would make it go faster, and it didn't work. So they're kind of like a very slow British Pixar. Yes. Oh, yes. It, I mean, it takes like five five years to make a, a um, that type of film. It's an enormous investment of time. Yeah. Um, so you do get the sense of quality, you know, that that is that, that can be skipped on, on, on faster films. So, Sue... Uh, anything to say on Ian's number five? Yeah, interesting, kind of cool, Ardman films. And yeah, um, interesting animation. I suppose I understand that it's kind of got kind of its points of like using plasticine and things like that for a change, and it's an unusual format. So yeah, I suppose it's worthy. Fair enough. 
It is time for the list to pick another victim to tell the number five, and the the list has picked. Well, it's me actually. Fair enough. Uh, so my number five film of the nineties, which probably won't come as a surprise to very many people at all that I've picked this movie to be in my list. Sam Raimi's The Quick and the Dead. Yeah. What can I say about this movie? Sam Raimi uh, obviously famously did Spider-Man. And he obviously equally famously did The Evil Dead. And the sort of Evil Dead period went from, well, before Evil Dead, there was Crime Wave, Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, Army of Darkness, Dark Man, all of that stuff. And it was all pretty much on on a tone. You know, you knew what you were getting when you went to a Sam Raimi movie. And then there was this period, and it began with The Quick and the Dead, I believe, where he did stuff, and he did a sort of a simple plan as well at the same time, which is kind of a remake, and not very Sam Raimi-esque at all. And then he became Sam Raimi who did Spider-Man, and then briefly detoured back into Drag Me to Hell. So, yeah, this was right in the middle of Sam Raimi's career, at the point where he's a bit of a washed-up horror-style throwback director, and before he's Sam Raimi, what does Spider-Man? And this film sank without trace. And I think largely because at the cinema, people like, I don't want to see Sharon Stone being a cowboy. And who makes Westerns anymore? And it's all ridiculous. And it's bound to be tedious. And what the hell's with that title? And no, I'm sorry. It's just not going to happen. And then I think there's a number of people who thereafter caught it video, television, whatever, over time, I think the love for this film has grown in retrospect because it is, without a doubt, uh, probably my favourite Western ever of all the Westerns because it manages to kind of put together comic book and pulp and Western and cartoon and comedy and action movie and just it has all these different genre things going off at once, and directing a sort of a Sergio Leone Western, like you're making an episode of The Three Stooges, who thought that would work? But it, it so does. And you've got so many gems of little performances. I mean, you know, Lance Henriksen is barely in this movie as Ace, and yet you remember his performance uh, so clearly, like with his little twiddly moustache and his little goatee beard and and of course you have a very young Leonardo DiCaprio uh, putting on some swagger and then being humiliated by you know I mean the reason that this town is is it's not really in the wild west it's on the east coast it's it's right down from southern New York but the reason it's so desolate and bare is because Gene Hackman chewed all the scenery there was no (laughs) scenery left he chewed it all to be the sheriff in this town it's absolutely amazing uh, the, the amount of tropes that it manages back in. It's very self-aware, it's very cheeky, and yet at the same time it has a sort of darkness and seriousness that allows you to carry through the action stuff. And of course it's like, a, it's kind of like a sort of cross between, and it's also like a cross between Sergio Leone and Enter the Dragon. It has that kind of martial arts thing, even though it's gunfights. So yeah, I mean basically, how could one not love the quick and the dead. Oh, plus, strong female role model in Sharon Stone's character. So, playing the woman with no name. Uh, so there we go. That's my, that's my number five. Gentlemen. Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree. Everything you said, I mean, I was going to bring up the kind of martial arts contest kind of thing as well. I, it's, it's something that, it's quite difficult 
to do a um, you know an original western. You know, it's 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 been somewhat saturated over over the years, and um, that format, you know, we've not seen before. It was just fascinating, and uh, you know, the humour, um, the casting is fantastic. Um, the characters are just so interesting. You know, they're they're all. I mean, the genius of it is that you know the gunfighter is a is a very interesting, intriguing figure. So you, can, you can, it's a bit like a computer game, and you've got all these different flavours of gunfighters and they they all get their you know their moment although obviously the nature of it is that those some of those moments aren't very long and uh, yeah i think it's a i think it's a great film i uh, i always enjoy it if it's, if it's on it uh it's i've said it before i think at the time it's wonderful how they kind of said the most the most iconic thing about westerns is the high noon showdown and just having a succession of those back to back what a brilliant concept for a film. It's like a, a series of set pieces, one after another. And there's so many little memorable pieces. I mean, Gene Hackman's speech about if you're alive tomorrow, it's because I allow it, is, is one of the best sort of villain speeches I have ever seen. It's, it's definitely a very good pick. So there we go. And uh, Sue, what do you think? Interesting. Yes. Well, I was surprised that that was one of your choices. Yeah. Uh, it got to the top, so what can I say? Uh, it's yeah, I suppose I can see your point. It does put in a lot of tropes, and it does kind of showcase a lot of different styles. And it kind of brings about a lot of other things in the future. I mean, things like, you know, that came later kind of owe a little bit to that. So, yeah, I suppose yeah. I can see well, why. I said, yeah. I said at the time, Sergio Leone directed by the Three Stooges. Yeah. It's just weird. Yeah. So, or the yeah, Three Stooges I directed by Sergio Leone, whichever way around you Yeah, so, yeah, I can kind of understand that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so uh, there we go. Everybody loves a little bit of uh, Three Stooges martial arts-inspired female starring Western, which also has Russell Crowe in it. But let's not talk about that. In fact, let's talk about Justin's number five uh, film of the 90s. Okay, this this was a tough one, actually, for me to... Because there were two films I was kind of rattling around my head, but I decided to go for this one just to give a bit of different tonality in the other kind of films I've chosen. The film that very, very nearly missed the mark was Event Horizon by a gnat's whisker. But what I have gone for is Beauty and the Beast. Aha. And now I'm a big, huge Disney fan, okay? And for much of my kind of time growing up, you know, Disney was just some, the films were just, you know, think videos and stuff. There wasn't a lot of exciting new content on the screen. You know, the dates were a bit devoid of a decent Disney film. There were a few attempts. And then we get kind of Little Mermaid, and then we get Beauty and the Beast, which pretty much goes, we're back. We're taking this seriously and we're throwing everything we can at it. I think it's a stunning film. I think it's the introducing the idea of a musical into it was genius. And they would carry on this for a few more films, that format. I think it's got fantastic characters. It's it's dark, you know, it's not your even though it's technically a princess movie, um, it is not it doesn't really follow those lines. You know, one, the character is not particularly princess-like. She's more academic. The, the central hero, Belle, um, who I have to admit having a bit of a crush when I was that age on. So she's kind of a lot more independent. She's a bit older as well than your kind of 16-year-old kind of typical princess. You've got a fantastic assortment of characters. The fact that 
they're all animated objects automatically gives them kind of free reign to create some kind of fantastic, memorable characters. And as someone who's kind of studied and gone to kind of lecture character design, it's just amazing, really. A kind of righteous kind of group of very interesting kind of designs. Yeah, I just fell in love with it. And it kind of re- and I, at that time, it was very exciting for me. I was like, oh my gosh, I, I can see that quality that I've been hoping for for years back on the screen. So I kind of ate that up. And, you know, the several that followed in the 90s. So it was a very special film for me. Um, I think it still stands. I've, I've seen it fairly recently. The music is just brilliant. The lyrics are amazing. If you look at, if you compare it to say Frozen, in terms of lyrics and music, you can't really compare it. Frozen basically is generic in terms of the songs in it. They could really apply to any particular type of property. Whereas actually the music, the, the language in Beauty and the Beast is intelligent. It's, you know, it's absolutely it's kind of a operetta style, which is completely appropriate for the time frame. And it's just, oh my gosh, I, I could go on and on about the lyrics of it, but the whole package is a joy to me, so I, I love it. I think it's it's only a certain Disney could do, thinking through the problem of the story and going, how can we make this, you know, the Disney touch, and going, oh yes, of course, the inanimate objects in the mansion are, of course, animated and have personalities and do sing and befriend our heroine. It's sort of little, little touch that only Disney could think up, I think. Very, very good. And yes, there's some very definitely nasty villains in this. The sort of, well, what's he, Gustav, whatever his name is? He's, he's a, he's a misogynist. He's a, he's a, he's yeah. a sort of some racist. He's a bully. He's like, yeah, the, the fun thing is that he's kind of cast in the mold of the hero. Yes. In his appearance. He's the square, the square uh, jawed hero. Um, it's a very, it's really interesting. Actually, there's not really, I mean, there is a, there's a kind of a bear which forms the only really kind of monstrous kind of villain. But I mean, he's pretty squarely villainous, but not like, he's not that typical vi- villain in that he's there in the castle kind of rubbing his hands, plotting these, you know, it's, it's kind of really a very understandable evil. The guy is just a horrible, lecherous kind of. He was, he's a narcissist. You know, he's a very human figure. You know, you can believe that kind of he's just selfish um, and lecherous. And there's a lot of people like that, yeah. um, which kind of adds something to the, it's, it adds something to the threat there rather than this kind of fantastical, typical kind of grandiose villain. Yes, but he's yeah. he's scary because when there's a rampaging mob, you know which way the mob's going to go between yeah. him and, and, a, and a guy with, with horns and, and little tusk teeth. Don't you? Although there is something, there is again something subtle about the design of his features that shows he's not quite a nice guy, but it's kind of subtle. But yes, um, it's not something I've watched exhaustively. It came out and I, I didn't go see it at the cinema, but I saw it subsequently afterwards, and it was like, yes, this is a continuation of of what they began with the Little Mermaid, with a, you know a big, uh, gorgeous musical number, song and dance story, uh, story with a female protagonist and it being a love story. So yes, it was it was part of that batch, which Aladdin was kind of the next one along, wasn't it? So Disney were on a roll. So this is a very good middle segment in that glorious trilogy of Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin. Yes, I think it's a, a good solid time for Disney. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, this is uh, one where like essentially i think i didn't sort of consciously go out of my way not to watch beauty and the beast but it was something that my sisters were really into 
Well, sort of together, I think that uh, Katie and Sarah, it was something that they could share. And indeed, Sarah had the video of it, the VHS video of it, and it just played around and around and around uh, in the television that she had access to. And so, obviously, it was a big part of, of their life. And you don't want to come in and sort of muscle your way in and be like, hey, I'm going to enjoy this too, and you can all go away. So uh, I knew that it was big. And not only that, but obviously, this was a time when I was doing a lot of uh, dramatic-type things and theatery type things. And I think that um, one thing that you do know is that of, before there was the Lion King musical, there was the Beauty and the Beast musical live on stage. You know, actors uh, and actresses uh, of a singing bent who like to do singing and acting together, they would, that's the thing, that was the the golden jewel that they would love to have a part in Beauty and the Beast. Um, Of course, uh, Hugh Jackman made his name from the role of Gaston. uh Aha, yes. So, you know, I mean, it's interesting that that you have, uh, actors have a thing where it's like all actors want to do Les Mis a bit because uh, it's hard. It's a difficult musical to be in, so they want to do it to prove that they've got the right stuff and they can be in Les Mis. Uh, but then, and obviously the thing is, they have such huge choruses in that musical that, um, that, that it's very likely that people will pass through the chorus of Les Mis at some point if they are stage actors in London. But yeah, this was a different type of breed. This was something where it's like, if I could go to work every day and be someone in Beauty and the Beast, that would be amazing even if it is just one of the, the chorus members. And that's kind of transferred to, to Lion King. But I, I feel that Lion King is kind of takes that as a given, whereas people were really excited about Beauty and the Beast. So uh, definitely, and I think that is, it stands out among the among that, that period of Disney's output in that people kind of generally seem to agree that Little Mermaid was like a step in the right direction and that obviously Aladdin is brilliant because it's got the genie in it. But Beauty and the Beast is the only one where people kind of go, no, this is, you know, this is solid, everything. There isn't a particular thing that makes it an outlier. It is an outlier by itself. Out of genre this week, aren't we? Yeah. Well, you know, animated fun. It is animated Beauty and the Beast is a fantasy movie as yeah. well. Yeah, animated fun, I'll agree with, yes. Always surprised me at how a woman could stay with a man that's so abusive. But yeah. <laughs> I've kidnapped your father, aren't I, God? Yeah, how funny look at you. There's not much in the village. If you look at the what she's got on offer, you've got Gaston or, or the Beast, so, you know. I know. I know. <laughs> She's pretty screwed, let's be honest, but... <laughs> I mean, at least chance. the Beast was willing to take a dancing. Yeah, she didn't have much of a chance, really, did she? <laughs> Beastie dancing. A mashup of Dirty Dancing and Beauty and the Beast. The most chickiest of chick flicks ever. Yeah. Sorry. I just, uh, <laughs> but no, I like Miss, Mrs. Potts and things in that. I was, there's a lot of fun with Beauty and the Beast and a lot of cheek and you know, tongue-in-cheek with it. So, yeah, I kind of like that. So, yeah, (laughs) cool, Phil. So now we want to find out your number five film of the 90s. Ah, well, you see, I'm going to say a little bit of something here, and this is going to upset a few people, but I'm going to have to say it anyway. When we did the 80s, I stayed very much on the kind of area that we were given, you know, because if I hadn't, I would have put Shirley Valentine at number one, probably got rid of Top Gun and moved everything else down. Yeah. Because Shirley Valentine to me is 
like the ultimate film, but it's not really within your genre. It's not no. really what you guys talk about. So I've broke genre with this one. Okay. Because it's too much of an important film to me not to. Okay, fair enough. So it's two one food with love, Julie Newmar. Yeah, I kind of guessed that was the one that you want to put in. Talk about this to us. Um, and it's because it's too important for me not to have put it in there. I would have put also put Priscilla Queen of the Desert in there as well, but I've moved that down slightly and put two one food above it. And it's because the action heroes kind of move themselves into that role of being more effeminate and take on roles that they wouldn't necessarily take on that I've moved it up. I think it's a massive, important film for me. It created a situation for me where I figured out what was important to me about what I wanted to support in life. And I support lesbian gay rights and I support that kind of marriage and those kind of things. I, I believe in equality and I believe in people treating people for who they are and not for what their gender is or what their you know beliefs are or what their colour or creed is or... And that film is the epitome of that. It's it's the epitome of treating people for, for who they are. And that's why it had to go in there for me. Sorry. I know it's out of genre, but Tu Wong Fu got in there. The interesting thing for me is that uh, at the time when the year that that came out, came out the same year as Priscilla. And I think uh, it's one of these cases, and it does happen from time to time, where you have this competitiveness in Hollywood. Oh, they're doing a, a drag queen movie. We have to do a drag queen movie or whatever it is. Somehow that became a thing uh, in this year. And at the time, Priscilla won, you know, it won the battle. But I don't think over time that it won the war because I don't think, I think that I hear more or maybe it's just because I'm, you know, married to you, but I, I get the feeling that people like, this film better over time. That Priscilla is kind of. Don't get me a bit. wrong. I love Priscilla as well. I love Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. But I think you expect Terence Stamp to kind of do Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. It's kind of almost like, yeah, he can pull that off. Do you mm. know what I mean? You don't expect Wesley Snipes in drag. Yeah. You don't expect those guys that are in Too Wong Fu to be in Too Wong Fu. You don't expect Patrick Swayze to be as absolutely brilliant in that film as he is. I think it absolutely showcased those guys. Well, as the the other film, well, yeah, you expected Guy Pearce and Terence Stamp and guys like that to do that very well. Yeah. So I think, to me, it wins over on that one. Yeah. So, well, Ian, Justin, really, anything to say? No, well, and for, and for that reason, very important, you know, for considering its message, that that did happen. Yeah, because you're taking role mo- you're taking role models and characters that are normally associated with a particular type of film, more mas- masculine kind of action genres, um, and then you're wanting the audience to be challenged by that and to change their opinion about things. So, uh, yeah, I have to profess that I'm not sure whether I've seen this film in its entirety. Uh, I will certainly be checking it out, finding it somewhere after this because I think I have neglected it. So I think um, it has every right to be in your top five slot. I I think think the other thing about it is that, uh, yeah, I think that what you put your finger on there is that it did, unlike Priscilla, which, as you say, it challenged the audience to accept drag queens, but it challenged the audience to accept Terence Stamp, one of the campest actors that ever was. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't a big leap. It wasn't a massive leap. Um, And then you've got, you know, but then in 
uh, to Wong Fu, I do remember at the time people go, oh, that's just ridiculous. Patrick Swayze and Wesley Snipes, what do they think they're playing at? But now, from 2014, you look back and go, wow, brave choice and more memorable for that. More memorable to have... A strange, a strange career. Very but. tall, very bulky guys playing very feminine roles. Yeah. So there we go. Well, yeah. um, I was just going to say, I, I've never seen uh, Tu Wong Fu. Uh, the girls in, in the student house I lived with in the first university had Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, on a loop. So I have, I have a lot of affection for the film. So I'm sorry to say that for me, perhaps, if you're going to have a road movie about drag queens, it has to involve General Zod and Agent Smith. Otherwise, I'm just yeah. not interested. <laughs> It's fair enough. That's fair enough. It says Priscilla nearly made it. It was it was a toss up. And actually, I've got written here that if you were going to make me stay in in thing, Groundhog Day would have been my number fifth. Yeah, well, I, I think also we're going to talk about also. No, that. but if you were going to make me, because I couldn't, I just couldn't do it to myself. I had to kind of go out of it, out it, of the loop here right. a bit. We don't need to have it, a Harry Hill style showdown. You know, yeah, have no. both on your no, shelf. So I have already taken the liberty of re-randomising the list. Ah. So we are now on to round four. Well, the fourth place. Um, And in round four, the list randomizer has determined that the first of us to share our number four film of the 90s will be... Justin! Okay, so uh, those of you who might have known some of my loves of film might not be entirely surprised by this but i have chosen dark city ah, which i remember being just blown away with visually when i watched this um it is stunning i think there is some visual effects in this that you have not seen before in terms of the kind of the whole this the kind of strange kind of city that warps and shapes as the whims of the kind of strange aliens underneath. It's very dark, as you imagine from the, from the, uh, from the title. And it has been compared to The Matrix. There are some similarities. But this is like The Matrix with a kind of a fairy tale dusting. There is something kind of whimsical, uh, mixed in with this, as well as noir running, running absolutely through it. So it's a strange fusion of kind of science fiction, fairy tale, noir, but, it is beautiful. I adore it. I, um, I, I watched it very recently, actually, uh, preparation for this. Um, it's strange. A lot of the time you're kind of just, what the hell? You know, you're, you're, you're bemused what's going on. And there's some quirky performances. In Sutherland, there's this kind of, oh, I haven't seen him in that kind of role before. Is this kind of strange, kind of crazed individual with this odd, broken speech. And, these very odd, peculiar, balding, white-faced kind of creatures, almost vampire-like aliens that inhabit this under- underworld. And and when we when we get the reveal of what they're up to in this kind of strange kind of spaceship with with humanity, again, that's the kind of matrix link, really, of the fact that these humans are all all being used for some purpose, and the life they know is not as actually what is the case. I just, I just love it. I love the look of it. I love the kind of darkness to it. Um, the kind of metaphors of dreaming. And, um, yeah, I think it's a little gem. It is a film, I must confess, I've only seen the one time, uh, and it was Leo sticking the DVD on going, watch this! 
Well, nevertheless, yes, it, it left a very memorable impression. Uh, I did see it sort of post-Matrix, and it, and it was very much, the conversation was very much kind of, look, this existed before the Matrix. Uh, but putting aside that particular film for a moment, um, taking Dark City on its own, yes, it is It is this wonderful, you said dreamlike. It, it, when everyone's memories are reshuffling every day, it, it is like a dream, because you're like you're being thrown into a slightly different reshaping of a scenario each day, aren't you, sort of thing. I do remember it, it, but I don't remember a lot of details. The strange Uh, aliens are trying to understand the human soul. Oh yeah, I understand. I understand all the motives of why why they're doing. So they shuffle everything around and try and create instances where they can, yeah, it's it's like like someone doing a puzzle. They're trying to figure out how to make it all tick. It is likely to say at the time it's strange they give away the twist at the start. Just the imagination of the idea. This is clearly a thought, an, an idea someone had been stewing over for some time before they came to the script. So it's 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 been nice. It's so developed that there's almost not enough time to explore the concepts that they have there. And yes, yeah, always happy to see Ian Richardson. Is it Ian Richardson? He was in, he was yeah. the chief villain in this. Yeah. Yes, always very happy. Although I do recall them having a battle of wills. Flying around in the sky above the city at the end, which I thought was, but, uh, but yes, um, it struck me as a highly original film. I think it's not a bad and, choice. And of course, it's got Richard O'Brien in it, which is always yes. a amusement to things. Never dull. Yeah, I mean, this is. I mean, it, it, this obviously was in contention for my list as well, being as it's uh, uh, one of my uh, favourite films of the nineties. Not, not. I can obviously now reveal it's not in the top five. We do not have uh, an overlap here. But, it, it, yeah, I mean, it came jolly close. I mean, the things about it that are, are so charming is that, one, you have to kind of accept, I think, that it's kind of goofy. There's a, there's a, a, an air of which... Well, and when you find out what the situation is, you think, well, what could possibly be the, the motivation for this? And then you just go, what the motivation is? You go, Really? That seems a bit extreme. And that's the point. If you can get over that point yeah. at which you could just think, no, nah, this is just stupid, then it's like, well, yes, it is. But at the same time, look at all the wonderful things it allows you to do. I mean, that's a very important lesson, I think, uh, for the for, for writers and creators, that if you've got this, this thing which allows you so much liberty to do something so startlingly original and thought-provoking, and uh, but the one point at which you kind of stumble over is kind of central to the crux of why is all this happening and then it's a bit silly and you're having to make it up out of whole cloth and it's not entirely convincing it's not actually a reason to abandon the project you can ask the audience you know okay so this isn't the most convincing setup in the world but look at what it's allowed me to do and 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 then people either can choose to go with it or not. And I think that anyone who chooses not to go with Dark City is the poorer for that choice. It's got some crazy stuff in it. Just the details, like they they really got under the skin of kind of pastiching the 1940s. But then it's not meant to really be the 19. We're not sure when it's supposed to be. I think the reason they chose that, apart from obviously the visual evocativeness that it allowed them, you know, liberty in film, is the fact that it is actually very similar to a lot of the science fiction that was around in that era. So it's this idea, oh, well, they're 19, you know, late 1950s aliens, and therefore they have come up with a late 1950s alien plan, 
which uh, doesn't make much sense. I mean, it's a kind of way of, it's almost a tongue-in-cheek reference to the goofiness of the plan. It's like, yeah, well, if the aliens had been modern, they wouldn't have done it this way. But because they were from the 1950s, they decided this was the best way to go. Um, and I think one thing that needs to be mentioned before before we move on is the machines, the giant clockwork machines of the aliens that are like a visual metaphor writ grand for the aliens are supposed to be able to just manipulate reality. That is part of their their power set, is the, their awesome godlike power of manipulation. Yet, in their secret lair, they have these giant wheels of cogs and things that rotate and big screens. And, and there's, if you think about it, if you could manipulate reality, there's no point in it. But my, doesn't it look amazing? I mean, it evokes uh, Fritz Lang's Metropolis and things like that in its in its scope and its sweep. So yes, definitely a worthy contender for a place on our list. Uh, don't you think you've really got much to say about that? It's not really your No, gag. it's not really my thing, but again, I can appreciate it. It's a very pretty film, so I can yeah. understand why Justin likes it, because it's very visually pretty. So, yeah. Yeah, because you're shallow, Justin. No, no, I don't mean in that way. I mean just in like... No, people artistic, know I'm going to be driven Just in the artistic appreciation. That's what I'm trying to say. It, it features heavily in my film choice. I think that's right. Uh, and so now, Sue's number four film of the 90s. <laughs> Toy Story. Awkward moment noise. Awkward moment noise. That is my number three. Oh, well, not that awkward then. We're nearly there. So uh, combining Sue's number four and Ian's number three. uh, So in order, uh, Sue, you could talk about first and then because Ian likes it better because it's higher (laughs) on his list, he could talk about it then. (laughs) So you first. I think it was visually very important for studios as far as the artwork was concerned i think it was a great story um i think it i think it was just a nice fun film but i do think it was a very important film for not only pixar but i also think for other studios as well for kind of breaking that kind of this is how we do things mold as far as those kind of films are concerned that reach children and adults and have humor for both but also kind of aren't too over Disney-fied, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. because it was a lot of film, uh, animated films before then were either very Disney-fied or they were very japanese or, you know, Pixar kind of hit the nail on the head with Toy Story of having its own look and its own thing, and I kind of liked it, and I kind of went that, yeah, I like, I like that. I like the artwork. I like the way it was done. The story's fabulous. I mean, Buzz and Woody's... Their rivalry is absolutely brilliant. Um, the whole, you know, the toys are alive thing. It's every kid's dream, isn't it, to have toys that are alive. But at the same time, you know, when you've got somebody like Sid, you know, the toys scaring him at the end. It's kind of like, you know, your dream can become a nightmare as well. If you pick on your toys, we'll get you, you know. I, th- I think it's marvellous. I think it's a brilliant idea. I think it's so sweet and innocent. But at the same time, I think it was done so well. So, yeah, brilliant film. And I'm going to let Ian take the trope there. Right, well, Ian. I can only reiterate what Sue said. It's a, I said in a, before. It's a love letter to a to a childhood. It's it's a great film that families can watch together. It's not just a kids' film. It's a it's a family film. I think that's great. I saw it as a family. My brother had already seen it, and I think he was like, "No, come see it again. We don't mind." And we, we all ran out. My mum was there as well, and went and saw it. And it was just, it is such a lovely, charming film, and it's funny. 
it's not it's not burdened by those terrible musical numbers that I so just can't get into. It was also, you know, it changed the um, Rubicon because it was the first big kind of animated feature that really kind of became mainstream. Uh, and it is it is Woody and Buzz, and Buzz is such a it's such a great character. This toy that doesn't realize he's a toy. My goodness, that was brilliant. And, and this, the, the, so much humour comes out of this. It's a great character, a great buddy movie. I know Justin was kind of down on it when we first talked about it because he, he was able to see a few sort of animators' tricks that they, they, they pulled during the movie. You know, the, the camera may have been locked off more or something. But as, as, a, as a sort of layman watcher, they were able to kind of hide their limitations well for me at the time and i think that's the second movie is good it doesn't it's not rubbish which i think was that was the main thing two had to be but three i think is uh a superb end to a trilogy and uh toy story in itself is 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 such a great enjoyable movie and also you know uh, again uh minorities and things that are poured down on in popular media uh, a single mother family with, without apology as well. So all good. Yes, Toy Story, brilliant, wonderful. Uh, uh, I love Buzz Lightyear. Um, yeah, it's a fantastic film, um, and I think you're absolutely right. This thing was a game changer, and it's not. It's not really the technical thing, and there's no really point in me talking about that because that type of animation doesn't have 50 years of uh, history behind it. So therefore, these are all. You know, certainly the first dozen or so films are always going to be breaking the grounds and trying, you know, to do things that haven't been done before. So there's no really point in criticising that because that is the state of, of the fact that that particular type of filmmaking. And certainly, you know, the technical side of it, I'm more pleased with the stuff now. However, that Toy Story as a film, emotionally, I think that it's so charged, that film, that I don't think I've been quite affected by an animated film in that way for some time. No one had even really seen anything like this anyway. We've got to understand that, that this type of animation has only been limited to very short kind of stuff that unless you were in the know and keeping up on this kind of stuff, you would not have seen anything like this before. They were a genius idea using toys because that actually, in terms of character designs and animation, that does not date because, you know, it's by its nature, it, there are limitations well, in place. I think, I think at the time I made this observation, animation was very good at doing designed objects. It was organic yeah. objects at toys. So all, all toys are designed. They are molded objects. Yeah. So it, it was, animation played that with was, strength. That, that's exactly. That was why it's very smart. But, you know, the, what it really... So you had that level of just sophistication, like, my God, I've never seen like anything on this scale before, or anything, indeed anything like it. But then you actually had which what, what made Pixar how it created its name and its following is the fact that you had this incredible emotional resonance that you could you could appeal to it wasn't just a silly kind of animation that children would like and 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 adults would be forced to take their children to which is kind of the disney model you know you either love disney or you don't most people aren't huge fans but their children are so they will endure it for that purpose but pixar went along and go we can make a film that everyone will get something out of you know it will be silly and fun it'll have all these zany characters that the young children will love and it's animated toys, you know, like you say, who doesn't want to look at, imagine that in their bedrooms. But then it will have incredible emotional resonance and, you know, just a depth that adults will really love and appreciate, as well as some fun stuff as well, little references and little kind of geeky stuff. 
I think it is an outstanding film. Uh, yeah, uh, did, I think that uh, I have. I mean, we've pretty much covered the ground here. Uh, but the important thing to note is that to this date, Toy Story and its uh, successors are notable in the history of cinema in being the trilogy that we can all agree on. You know, it's like there are other trilogies, but none of them cover the ground. You know, like you said, well, you have to, you know, to a uh, hundred random people that you've just hoovered up off the street and said, well, we're going to do a sort of proportional representation thing. You're all going to have to sit through a marathon of some trilogy. Um, here's some choices. Toy Story and Toy Story was on the list. It would win every time. Every time you put a number of random people together and say you have to watch three movies in a series back to back, Toy Story will win I all actually, the time. I actually did it the other week because I was bored. I actually sat and watched all three and loved every minute of it. And again, it was like that's another reason it went on my list because it was like I was going through all my lists and I was going, I can't help but rewatch it. I, and I still love it, and I still it's find humour It's the fact that they build on each other, really. Yeah. Each one adds another layer to the story. And it does not they don't feel like sequels, you know? You don't feel like you're just watching the same characters going through a similar situation. Um, it's helped by the fact that there's a notable gap between each film, so that the actual technology allows you to do, for instance, in the first one, you know, organic forms are pretty ropey-looking, OK? I mean, you might love it, but I... It makes part of it unwatchable for me because they were really finding their feet there. But as it as it as it develops, they become they can do those things, and actually then it allows you to do stuff with the storytelling far more sophisticated. The third one, oh my god, that is a that is such an emotional film, beautiful, and it and it's like a real journey. That whole kind of you know we've all grown up with Toy Story, so you really feel that that development of you know that character passing those toys on. It's a real, you know, it's it's so charged. And so you look at these as it's cataloging, it's, you know, the, 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 the state of animation where it's gone, where it is now, where you get to that stage, and it all, each part of that feels beautiful in that trilogy. It is, it is yes, a stunning collection of films. I think the other thing... I know, I was just going to say that I think the other thing that makes films very important is quotability as well. And they're so quotable. Who can't quote something from Toy Story? Yeah, yeah. Ian, your fifth, uh, fourth favourite film of the 90s, please. Ah, well, here I enter in with a certain degree of trepidation, for I'm going to throw out one of those names which I'm sure is going to strike somebody, although I'm confident it won't be Sue. Uh, so it is with deep fear and regret that I must <laughs> reluctantly throw down onto the floor in a defiant fashion the words Pulp Fiction. Nope, not me. Wow. Not me, no. Not me. Uh, are you eschewing it uh, because of uh, Tarantino kickback or something or no it just no it just didn't it, it, the reasons for my top five were entirely personal and it, it didn't make it no yeah no. you you i mean i tend to choose a lot of visually striking films as you'd probably be aware uh yeah it didn't re- it didn't match my criteria but you know that doesn't, yeah. that, that's that's that, that i personally i very much enjoy pulp fiction so that's not really a, a yeah i enjoyed a, it it just a, a comment it, on, it lost on, one of the rounds let's put it that way 
Yes, um, to go to my reasons for it, it's simply because it just made so many ripples for such a long time. You think about things you watch again and again and again. I mean, I haven't, I haven't watched it in probably over 15 years, but at the time it was huge and I was watched and analysed endlessly and it was a massive influence upon me for a great time. Although we have you know, all said we've, well, those of us who were caught up in this net have since evolved beyond it to greater things. Uh, it's simply the fact that um, it was there and it was a thing and it happened. And let us not forget that without it, would we have Samuel L. Jackson uh, being Mr. Cool Awesome that he is today? If nothing else, it gave us that. Yeah? Yes, uh, indeed. Indeed, yes, yes. Yeah, we're all a bit over the cool talking uh, comedy gangsters now. We're all a bit over, you know, our time-shifting, uh, non-linear stories. Uma Thurman's star seems to have declined. Uh, John Travolta seems to have disappeared. I think it's only Samuel Jackson who has sort of soared above it and became even cooler than he was at the time he made Pulp Fiction. It's it's just, you know, the influence it had on us, Leo, because we, we were doing student films at the time and it was a massive influence in how we thought scripture come together at the time. Uh, it's it's just that kind of footprint within my life. It's there because of its gravity. And like I say, even though we have escaped it and moved on, I can see it just as a sedimentary layer uh, in the strata of our thinking. It's like, well, it, it's still nonetheless one of the bedrocks we've built on, even though it has been superseded. So it's kind of there for kind of an acknowledgement that it, it was a thing. It was pulp fiction I, and it was big. It, I think it's definitely one of my favourite Tarantino movies. I mean, oh, I think it's the best one. I, I, it probably, for me, probably is. I mean, I, I think Reservoir Dogs really, you know, you kind of took took note of this. Um, but I, in terms of cinematically, you know, just a film, I think that it appealed to me a lot more than Reservoir Dogs. It just, I very much enjoyed all the interactions, the just the, the variety of characters, the pacing of it. Yeah, it just hangs together incredibly well and I remember it's not a film that I I think probably haven't seen uh, for a long time but I remember watching it going yeah that that is impressive I just thought it appealed to me on a lot of different levels as someone who's fascinated by film the kind of dialogue the characters and cinematography so um, so yeah I think I think it's a great film it doesn't fit my criteria for choosing things but that does not diminish it at all no. My eyes. I, I think we've uh, kind of been over uh, Pulp Fiction quite uh, extensively, but I will say that uh, how can you entirely dismiss any film that has uh, Christopher Walken talking about a man wearing a watch up his ass? You can't. So uh, I think oh, that's I about what we're doing it. As today is, uh, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. We shall ask, ask Sue to comment on Pulp Fiction, uh, but uh, we shall uh, move on instead. I will just instead. say that I understand why other people like it. Fair enough. There we go then. So my number four, which is good. I think this might cause some raised eyebrows. No embarrassing noises, but some raised eyebrows. My number four favourite film of the 1990s is John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. Okay. Um, now, this was uh, a strange thing. It just wouldn't leave the list. And when you put it up against another film, the things that leave this in my list are, first of all, it's a film that kind of takes in that whole blockbuster horror author thing in the 
character Sutter Kane, who you're never really sure if you meet Sutter Kane. There's certainly someone in the cast list who is named as Sutter Kane, but by the time you get to the part of the movie where that character appears, uh, you're not really sure what's real anymore. So that's that's the other thing. It has, uh, without a doubt, one of the most satisfying complete breakdowns of reality. I mean, that's that's one of the things that possibly uh, kind of goes unnoticed is that uh, I've actually seen the film twice now. Once when it first came out, when I really didn't care for it, and then again as research because uh, what I think I, what two things I didn't appreciate at the time. One, we weren't going to see anything like that mm, ever again to date. And two, it's not, as I originally thought watching it, just a complete incoherent mush of rubbish. It is the only time that I can actually remember in a movie them taking reality and slowly, you know, like a Jenga tower, pulling bits of reality away one after another until the whole thing topples down. That by the end you're like... Every time they do that, you're like, well, I don't understand that ending. What are they trying to say? Whereas in this one, the ending is is actually kind of poetic in its chaos, um, which is just crazy. Sam Neill uh, manages an incredible job managing that, as because he's on screen nearly the whole time, and he's got to go from one very genre-esque character, an insurance investigator, who, you know, this, this Sutter Kane guy goes missing and he's just looking for him. And then at the beginning, it's very much, I mean, this is the thing. It simultaneously pokes fun at and is one of these horror blockbusters because, you know, there's a bit where a crazy guy tries to kill him in a, in a diner early on, which is some kind of foreboding incident. And of course, he as a character just sees it as a random incident. And then he starts having bits where he wakes up or he's not sure what reality is. And, and, and then it slowly kind of goes off the track of the horror film. And it's kind of like John Carpenter, who obviously wrote this film as well, said, you know, all of this Stephen King, all of this Clive Barker stuff, they're not getting the true underlying baroque horror and then it goes into the hp lovecraft bit and that's the thing this is without a doubt the truest translation of a lovecraftian horror onto the screen that has ever existed even including the things that are like direct like the the hp lovecraft society did a silent movie version of um one of the the cthulhu story which i've seen and yes that's like a straight adaptation but that's the problem it's sort of like a lovingly crafted museum piece this actually gets right under the heart of the complete insanity at the heart of an hp lovecraft story and like right at the end you've got this full fully satisfying i mean that's the other thing when i first saw it i was young and i didn't really hadn't really got into call of cthulhu or any of these things when you are into that the part with the darkness and the tentacles and the eyes and the madness at the end and you're just like, this is incredible. He's managed to strike it bang on, but it's not an H.P. Lovecraft story. And Sutter Kane is not really H.P. Lovecraft, but then there's, you know, it manages to veer between hokey horror cliches and this really genuine disturbingness and be meta and a parody and a pastiche and a seriously good horror movie with some crazy mind warping twists and turns all at once. Um, and, and, and a very creepy old lady who runs a hotel as well, which is obviously compulsory in any good thing. So, yes, In the Mouth of Madness 
has become, uh, by virtue of this very show, my fourth favourite film of the 90s. Fair enough. Is, is he a writer in this? Because I'm just trying to think whether I've seen it or not. Uh, no, he's an insurance investigator, and he's employed... There's a writer called Sutter Kane, who... That's right. They have, all the, they have all these big kind of airport novel-style books with the Sutter Kane covers that look very much I, like Stephen King. I King's remember books. being quite creeped out by this when I saw this. I, I, I suppose I need to really reinvestigate it, because at the time I wasn't really into horror films... And I remember watching it one night. Uh, going, as a Call of nice. Cthulhu fan, Justin. Yeah, but this, is, this, is long, I, 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 this hadn't quite developed, I think. Yeah. So I think, I, for some reason or another, I didn't really give it much consideration. Yeah, no, this, well, no, I, I mean, you're in exactly the same boat as me. If you watch it today, having played as much... Uh, Cthulhu type stuff, or being around as many yeah. Cthulhu fans as 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 yeah. we have, you will you will not help but find a a place in your heart for it because it is just it just manages to hit it so perfectly. I I have seen this bits of it on television, and that's as, as far as I can go. I do recall Samuel descending into nan- madness as he so frequently does. Um, <laughs> But I shall have to watch it again to give it. Yeah, well, this is one of the best madnesses. Because, I'm sure. I'm sure it's the definitive Samuel goes mad film. Well, because unlike usually when Samuel goes mad, and this is just because he's doing what's in the script. There's, I mean, Event Horizon is a great example of this. There's, there's a moment when he's, I'm Samuel and I'm completely normal, and then, a, and then he's like, and now I am a raving lunatic, and there's like a line he crosses. In this. He dances back and forth across the line. So even at the end where we're supposed to understand that he has, he, well, he realises he's mad as the audience realises he's mad because he can no longer draw a line between reality and fantasy. And isn't that what madness is? He has no idea. And what we realise is as an audience, we don't have any idea either. And so we're all mad together. And it's a strange film that manages to drive the audience mad as it drives the central character mad. And right up until the last few moments, he's kind of, is he mad or is there something going on? And then at the end you realise, we've gone so far beyond, is there a sinister plot? There is no telling. This is just stuff that is happening. We are completely bonkers as a whole. You watched it with me, Sue. And I agree with you, it's completely bonkers. I find it a bit dull, you know I do. You know, yeah. Okay, it. fair enough. You know, you know what I was like watching it. I was like, oh god, oh this film. Oh, I find it all very. Oh, why is this happening? Oh, don't like this. But at the same time, yeah, it's bonkers. It's <laughs> weird. Things happen. It's mental. I can understand why you, as a Lovecraftian fan, and into that kind of thing, appreciate it. Me as somebody who likes my horror a bit more the other way, kind of. Hmm. Well, you'll find out in a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, right, so the, the wheel of, of, of fate has spun once more. We have one final round. Uh, the wheel of, uh, the list of randomness had determined that Ian was to go first, but as he had Toy Story, we're obviously not going to do that. Uh, so, and then it said it was me. So I get to go first in this round. So, uh, my third favourite film of the 90s, Rolling Straight On, which will be of no surprise to anyone at all. I think from now on, you're pretty much, yeah, I can see that they would pick that. Number three, 
And this is actually the position I had some difficulty with, but in the end, I came down on the side of Fight Club. But of course. Tyler Durden yeah. says. Uh, what what is there that remains to be said about Fight Club? I mean, I said, you know, there's not. I mean, weirdly, after In the Mouth of Madness, it's yet another film where when I see it, I'm like, I I think, you know, it drove me a little bit mad because I was thinking, well, the only way to end this is to kill everyone with poison gas. Um, and then we came to the conclusion that the actual ending is far more satisfying than that. One, the reason that this had to go on is because it is so whole and complete and the thing that it was wrangling with at number three was the fifth element and in the end the only thing that bumped the fifth element out of the list is the fact that the ending isn't as satisfying as the ending of fight club fight club is you know every moment in fight club relates to every other moment in fight club perfectly it's a whole complete jewel of cynical satirical storytelling really it doesn't have it it's another one of these things satire has so often has a problem that it doesn't have a good word to say about anyone and that makes it very challenging to watch as a film because you're like i'm watching a film in which i don't like anyone and you don't really like anyone in this film but it's kind of compelling um and also it has this kind of thing where uh obviously you have like cg penguins and that means, and then CG lots of stuff. There's a lot of CG in Fight Club, but you don't really notice it. I mean, it's the best type of CG because it serves the film's agenda so well that it kind of, people don't go, oh, remember those ropey CG penguins? Oh, yes, here's a, here's a fact that I gleaned from the commentary. When they're doing those bits where it's like retreat to your safe penguin-filled cave, you know, like you could see his breath. That's Titanic breath. That's actually the breath that was on the lips of Rose and Jack at the end of Titanic. They just recycled it. It's the exact same special effect. Uh, so there we go. So uh, it, and there's something kind of ironic about that in a way. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, do I necessarily agree with Fight Club and its view on humanity and its view on the? At the time, I thought it said something quite profound, and I haven't really changed that part of me, but the rest of me has changed. I'm like, I think that it's it's kind of, there's another level of it where it's a joke as well. It's so totally unrealistic, as well as saying something. It says something by extrapolating a part of humanity that's particularly ugly, but it does so with such complete such a complete agenda that it, yeah, I mean, it's just an amazing film and, and it survives to this day as a, as a classic because of that. It was the uh, film that was famously spoiled by an Adam and Joe sketch, which I've, which I've put on our Facebook page, by the way, in case anyone's seen it. It is, it's a film I've seen once, but, and I haven't really seen it again, but in doing research for like 1999, I stumbled across a few videos of Fight Club, and it's it's amazing all the little subtle hints that are there. And spoilers, everyone, <clears throat> about Tyler Durston's character that are laced throughout it, like the fact that uh, Aaron Norton's character rings him, doesn't get an answer, and then gets a call back. Uh, but the fo- it's a public phone, and the phone box says there's no callbacks on this phone. There's a little sticker on it that says it can't be done. Huh. Uh, there's other things as well. When, when, when people are talking to Tyler, sometimes they're looking at Norton, and when the, when they crash the car, 
Uh, even though Tyler was driving, uh, when the Tyler uh, crawls out, he drags Norton out the driver's side. So like, all these subtle hints were, were, were uh. laced throughout it. And I found that exceedingly clever as a person who likes little clever things. Because um, the central conceit of the film it is just so it's just so fascinating. The fact it has so much other commentary to go along with it is just kind of this brilliant bonus. It's a very visceral, memorable film. And and Brad Pitt's parents uh, walked out at the bit where he kissed Norton's hand and poured a sort of caustic soda on it or whatever it was. That was as far as they could watch it before they were like, nope, sorry, Brad, we can't see this film through to the end. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed watching it again to pick up all those things uh, that you mentioned there, Ian. Um, particularly the fact that, you know, the fact that he beats himself up in front of his boss and you you just assume that this is, you know, him getting a little bit more intense until you realise, obviously, that that was there all along. And, yeah, it's just a lovely relationship between Helen Bonham Carter and the house, how they she talks to him. And, it you know, but it's done in such a way that you just think it's her going frustratedly talking to him because of his character. And then when you see that and work that out, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's very rewarding to watch it on a second uh, time. I must admit, much more rewarding I found than watching Usual Suspects a second time, which doesn't really benefit yeah. from the twist by watching it again because you kind of go, oh, right, okay. Very satisfying film. I um, remember it very fondly. I was, yeah, it definitely was one of those films that people talked about. It was a, it was an important film. The message, the power, the kind of the, the and I say the twist in mechanic really is like, it's not a film that just relies on that. It's interesting anyway. And, and um, yeah, I think it's, it's a great, great film. I think it's a very male film. Yes, we have discussed this. We've said it before, and I'll say it again. It's a very masculine take on insanity. It always will be. Um, I think there's a very rough edge about that because of it. But I think that rawness is kind of needed to that film, especially with all the little drops of clues in there and things like that. I think that kind of... I think it. I think it does a good job of distracting you because it's so harsh and masculine. Yeah. Well, it's it's often uh, said, although I'm not sure how true this is, but that well, I mean, I, it, without going into sort of gender politics, psychosis or psychotics often hurt other people, whereas neurotics often hurt themselves. Yeah. And the interesting thing in Fight Club is that this is about a man so neurotic he believes he's psychotic. Yeah. And that's how the break happens, because he cannot believe he is injuring himself. Yeah. He can't afford to believe that. And then interestingly, when he, you know, and him and Marla sort things out at the end, and he kind of accepts being a whole person, th- that's the point at which he, he realises, you know, I've burnt my own hand, I've been mm. punching myself in the face, yeah. I've been doing this to myself. Yeah. It's, it's, but that kind of, as I said, it kind of needs that rough edge. It kind mm. of needs that masculinity to distract you from those points. Because if it kind of went head on with those points, it would be a completely different film. Uh, and I think there is also um, a, a point at which you can't get away from, and especially not weirdly, you know, as time goes on, this becomes more and more of a thing. The fact that Project Mayhem's ultimate goal is to reset the debt record back to zero. And even Tyler Durden doesn't want to hurt an actual human being. 
He just wants to blow up all the computers that hold the debt record. And he knows that the buildings will be clear because all the members of Project Mayhem work as security, which is just hilarious. But it's like, to this day, I think what's dangerous about the ideas in this film is that to most people, the idea of taking all that credit card debt and third world debt and country debt and all the money and the richness and the actual monetary system and just obliterating it is still quite attractive, even though you know it's mad. That idea of just taking everyone going, zero, no one, everyone is now equal because there is no money. It's just a great thing but is you know anarchy is it so attractive really but it's still something that in your head you think yeah to be honest the world is so screwed that that is what it is so uh next on the list sue Mm. your third favorite film of the 90s call call bang oh awkward moment noise this is my number two (laughs) the crow it has to be it's visually beautiful it's gothic and haunting and absolutely visually stunning it's story is absolutely wonderful the idea that you know somebody can come back for the sake of love can come back and get that kind of revenge on people who murdered him and his girlfriend but the, the, also the tale of him looking after the the younger girl and, you know, wanting the mother to be clean so she can look after the young girl and the cop that's following them, him around. And the whole story is just wonderful. It's so quotable. It's so visually stunning. Such a loss of Brandon Lee. It, what a film. Probably one of the best films ever made, to be honest with you. But, yeah, what a film. Sorry. Well, you won't find any argument from me. My obsession with the Crow franchise is uh, has been gone over and gone over. I think that, I mean, weirdly, although people, I mean, there are, there are fans. The Crow has fans. There are people who like the franchise. And as we have noted on our journey, happy fans don't say much, which is why fans of the Crow franchise as a whole are not represented. Most people who say anything about the following Crow movies are there to complain. But I think that the existence, at least of the second Crow movie, where a man comes back for the love of his son, makes the Crow, the first one, better. Because it's like, well, this guy happened to come back because he and his girlfriend were so in love. But then the next guy, this guy loved his son so much that he came back. And that just talks about, it doesn't matter, it's not about, I mean, it makes it less about romance and more about emotion yeah. to know that people could come back for love in a generic sense and that is that is uh, a marvelous concept the uh, visual atmosphere of, of the crime mean, we already uh, talked about dark city same director and in fact uh, one of the things that i was trying hard not to talk about at the time of Dark City, was that part of the influence of the Dark City's look was the fact that Preuss had done so much work with their CG and models in The Crow to make this kind of... I mean, we don't know what city that The Crow takes place. It is a city. Uh, it's just very chicago Well, yeah, but at the same time... Yeah, the same, yeah. Draven's Flat is very New York, like yeah. old-school New York, yeah. and it, it's got shadows of Boston, and yeah. you just don't know. I mean, it's just a, it's one of these films, and there are a number of them, that take place in a generic American city. 
And, and you know, yeah, the crow definitely has the best action sequences because following this, they didn't really hire anyone as capable as Brandon Lee again. I mean, not that they couldn't have. Um, you know, Mark Descascos did the series, yeah. and there are martial artists about who could probably do this kind of thing, but they just chose with the franchise to cast people and make it more of a sort of revenge, stalky yeah. kind of other type of experience. So the Crow's got the best action sequences in it. Michael Wincott is a joy in this yeah. film, really going for going for broke as as the villain. You know, the only thing that's bad about it. Some people might say that the crow's reputation, as a, you know, it's endured because Brandon Lee died while making it, and I think that's actually a disservice to the film. I, I think, think film... that's a bit like saying the same thing with Heath Ledger playing the Joker. That film's still a great film, with, but Heath exactly. Ledger well, exactly. made something. You know what I mean? Exactly. It's like, you know, it's like it's... The, 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 it, it casts a shadow over. I think that you know, in the long term, in both cases, that kind of incident casts a shadow over the film rather than making it better. It would have been a better movie yeah. if nobody'd had to die to make it. Yeah. That's the thing. And and that's why I think. But yes, and, and it is interesting as well um that in this case the film's subject matter should so mirror that process. But yes, the crow uh, definitely a, a brilliant movie and you're not going to find any argument with me on choices. Uh gentlemen. Uh, yeah, I, I can't really fault you on, on on the choice. It's not my... In terms of genre and stuff, I mean, it wouldn't fit in my list because it's not really my kind of thing. However, I can't dispute the fact that, I mean, visually it is just stunning. It is, it is a beautiful film. And um, I remember probably watching it with uh, both of you on one occasion. And, um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's cracking, you know, it's, 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 it's good. It's, so it's not entirely my cup of tea, but, but it is definitely a, a little gem. What's this? Milk? Two sugars? This isn't my cup of tea. No, um, <laughs> uh, yes, I saw it at the time. I think, I think, Leo, uh, you were a crow fan before the crow was around. As I, as we did as part of our college work, genre films, and you did a sort of a sort of a horror. Was it a horror? What genre was it exactly? But it was a revenge movie. Someone comes back from the Dark dead. Dark fantasy. Dark fantasy. Someone comes back from the dead and avenges themselves against uh, a, a list of gangsters. Although in your case, it was a gangster himself. He was just coming back from revenge. There was no love going on. But it was same same basic kind of structure. You know, the whole uh, resurrection revenge thing. So you know, you you were you were proto crow fan before crow came along so in many ways i think this this film filled a hole in your heart i should have, i should point out that i could have read the graphic novel because that existed for some time before i did that but i didn't i didn't know it existed oh yes there, there was there was many there was many going it's basically the crow you've done here isn't it Liam? no i did it we wrote it in x month the crow came out in y month it was all that going, but yes. So uh, su- su- surprise, not surprise. I wasn't expecting Sue to pick this, but now she's picked this. She kind of go, oh yeah, yeah. She's into, into, her, into her rock and roll, into her gothic, into. Her... Oh yeah, amazing soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, no, this is what I was going to say. It is actually. A, I mean, what, what when Justice said it's not really his cup of tea, he's like, well, essentially. The it's an emotional film with a the, great visual and a great soundtrack. Why is it not your cup no, of no, tea? No, 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 no. What I'm saying is the differences between The Crow and Dark City, apart from the fact that Dark City has its bonkers setup, is that uh, The Crow is goth noir, which yeah. I never realised was a film genre until just this moment. But what uh, goth noir does 
is it takes all the sort of film tropes of noir, but then all the characters, rather than being dressed like they're from the 1940s, are all dressed as goths from the 1980s, or derivatives thereof, and it's full of rock music. And then, but it's essentially a noir movie. So yeah, there is that. There, there is definitely in the crow. There is a definite strand which is noir. Um, but it, it, yeah, I mean, there is the whole subgenre of movies which are goth noir movies. Yeah, you'd think it wouldn't be my type of thing, but it actually really is. It's the only type of kind of noir that I can kind of get with. It's 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 it. It's the, it's the gothicness of it I can cope with. So who likes goth noir? It's out. It's I like goth. I like goth full stop end of story. Anything dark and gothic, I'm in there. I'm fine. I'm happy. You know, so, yeah. Yeah, cool. Sorry, I took your number two, Leo, but yeah. Well, no, right, yeah, but you took Ian's number three, so. <laughs> I'm sorry, you're I'm making God I'm damn you You're about to now take Justin's number one, just to be fair. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there we go. Good. Uh, I think that concludes our, well, it Justin, doesn't conclude. Justin's next. Yes, Justin is next indeed. So uh, that is the number three film from Sue, which is great. And the number three film from Justin, the last film we're going to consider in this part is... Is the fifth element. Oh, fantastic. That's That's put it in. No uh, embarrassing noises, but that, yes, it nearly got Now, I w- I, this doesn't go lower down because I think that it is flawed. There are parts of it that don't quite work. But I can forgive it because it is just a glorious technicolour kind of nonsense of sci-fi that is incredibly fun to watch. I mean, I just don't stop enjoying it, really. It is crazy. It taps on a lot. The French no- Frenchness of it, I think, comes through from the kind of Mo- Mobius kind of vibe from that kind of very, very specific French sci-fi. And you can see echoes of that in kind of heavy metal and uh, other kind of things influenced by that. So it's it, the design of it is crazy, right? I mean, it's like this is what happens when you get, you know, Gautier designing a sci-fi film. People are wearing the most, even the heroes, everyone is wearing the most ludicrous colours and fabrics. and But it somehow works because it's a kind of a cartoon, essentially. It's overblown, grandiose. You know, it's it's got everything. It's got a bit of Indiana Jones with the desert sequence and the Egyptology. You've obviously got kind of Star Wars with these massive space fleet kind of Star Destroyer things. It's this great epic battle between evil and good. And then in that, you've just got absolute batshit crazy characters like the Ruby Rod character. When I first saw it, I found it almost unwatchable. He's so irritating. But that is the point of it. Uh, you've got, you know, women draped around in kind of ludicrous costumes. Not very practical costumes, you know, but then that's what happens when you give a fashion designer uh, uh, the job. Fantastic introduction to uh, the female character. I mean, just... It's got so many memorable things, this film. It's di- difficult to ignore it. It take, kind of shakes you about violently, throws, vomits colour at you and kind of hideous tastes at you and, you know, everything. And you are left kind of a bit bamboozled. Um, so there's a bit, there's a kind of a the section with the hotel and stuff is not my favourite bit. You know, I think I must prefer the first half of it is fantastic, the kind of pacing of it. Uh, Gary Oldman, of course, chewing the scene, scenery in a, in a ridiculous extent. By far, he's the hammiest performance ever. Um, it's bonkers. It, it's beautiful. It's crazy. It's it's fantastic. I love it. Uh, well, I suppose I should go second because I nearly made my list. Yeah, I mean, 
the thing about it is I didn't see it at the cinema at the time because uh, I didn't really fancy it. And then when I saw it afterwards, I deeply regretted my uh, choice. Uh, and I don't really know what it is. I mean, you know, the idea of Dayglow Blade Runner is just mental. And the number of, of smart choices that were made is, is too big to go into. Um, and I think that its weaknesses can be forgiven for the fact that, uh, you know, a director had this courage to take a story he'd written at 14 years of age and really commit to it uh, and not go, oh, I'll just change it. It'd be better if I do this so with a more mature mind. You know, this is definitely the same man that recently brought us Lucy. He wants to explore these spiritual ideas and, and, and philosophical ideas by just, you know, it, it doesn't matter if they're a little bit gauche. Let's put them up and see what happens and see visually until you realise it visually, what are you going to see? And, and it's endured, I think, for that exact reason. And, and yes, it's my favourite, just because it's the only film where I know that Jean-Paul Gaultier designed every last facet of everything, doesn't mean that it can't be my favourite. I'm not sure that, you know, if he'd ever done another one, it would it would come close again. You know, I think it must have been a lot of work for the poor guy. And that's possibly why he didn't do it subsequently. Um, because, yeah, someone put, you know, that's amazing to have a film which is visual design. Someone has poured their heart, their unique and different heart and soul that deeply into something is, is just fantastic. Gary Oldman transforms himself as usual. Giving the, you know, I think that he knew. I mean, he read the script and he was like, well, there's a giant rock of evil, but that's not really a villain. I'm the villain. And so he really, like, fills that gap and makes it, you know, gives you a sort of antagonist you can really hate with that un- un- unabashedly. As to the Ruby Rod thing, what I think is really funny is that Bruce Willis's chemistry with Chris Tucker is fantastic. He is perfectly at the straight it's great when he's when he does a, there's a couple of times he gives him the microphone and you know bruce willis does his typical kind of like minimalist you know grunt he'll just say it one word he's deeply embarrassed by the whole affair and he's brilliant you just got you know yeah What's, the juxtaposition of those two is fantastic yeah, what elevates that one further level is the fact that i think that chris tucker just thought it was like a joke but there's a thing in Bruce Willis which is like, no, this is my absolute fantasy of how I want to treat journalists. Because he treats <laughs> journalists like that anyway. And this is like the ultimate annoying journalist to him. So there's a kind of like schadenfreude to Bruce Willis's interactions with Chris Tucker. And the fact that Chris Tucker seems entirely unaware that it's not just a bit is even more fantastic still. Crazy good soundtrack as well. Yeah. I mean, a really good soundtrack. And, and yeah, I mean, you know, what, what, what more need be said, Sue? Great, strong female protagonist. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. I mean, in spite of the little skimpy costumes, strong female protagonist. Can't argue with Lilo Dallas Multipass. <laughs> I think John Paul Gautier is quite equal opportunities on skimpy, it's, though. No, know. but this is what I'm saying. It might be skimpy outfits, but it's skimpy outfits all around, people. And the other thing that I think is underrated about this film is Lee Evans in this film. Oh, brilliant. He does very little, but what he does is absolutely brilliant in this film. We're sending somebody in to negotiate. When did they <laughs> negotiate? <laughs> you know, it's those little punchlines that come from people doing those kind of things that are spot on perfect. And it's people like Lee Evans who are thrown in there, Gary Oldman. You know, it's, it's those 
spot on lines that come perfectly one after the other and you just think yeah beautifully crafted beautifully created brilliant explosions the last proper explosions ever to be done in hotel, yeah, yes. the last took ones 20 ever. minutes all to put the fire out. Yeah, well, you know, 20 minutes to put the fire out was all worth it in the end because it's the last one's ever done. They're all CG now. They're all fake now. Absolutely brilliant. Visually stunning. Marvellous. Uh, as you said, amazing soundtrack. Uh, what, can, what, what can you ask for? I just want to yeah. comment on yeah the fact that it is... It is at this cusp. It's just before the real CGI explosion kicks in. And you can just... There's a surprisingly number of miniatures are used in this. And what are those dog aliens called? The kind of the kind of grunts. Cause, because... I can't remember. Yeah, these days... Oh, they, these, yes, these these days they would just be CGI, wouldn't they? they it would be shot with a, with a man in a blue Lycra suit with ping pong balls on, on his, all over his body. But no, it's a, it's a rubber suit with a sort of uh, slightly animated face. When they had the fight, it's a little little, little Korogoff fight, and there's no, there's I don't see much wire work going on. It was, it was, it's sort of like, oh, this is all pre kind of, it's pre Matrix, it's it's pre CGI explosion, so it, it's got a kind of early nineties about it. That's it's like, oh, this is a very special time. It helps it stop, it stops it from dating because the, the CGI in it is just like you know spaceships and backgrounds, and to be yeah. honest. It's pretty good, you know. You don't look at it and go, "That's horribly dated." But if it actually had animated characters in and organic things, it would probably look a bit poor these days. Whereas, so that actually keeps it ch- its charm. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah. Because, because of that, when we, when we go to the big hotel in space, we're not thrown in with lots of CGI aliens walking around the background to show what a crazy multicultural green purple universe we're living in. That the tone that down so it's not distracting. So that's quite, you know, in terms of. We don't, we don't see that anymore. It was a splendid film. I enjoyed it. It reminds me of being in university. It reminds me of my time in Bristol. Wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I think of, of all the films in the 90s in which a giant rock is coming from outer space, you know, to destroy the Earth, uh, this is the only one in which they made the genius decision to make the rock a talking character who could phone you up. So, you know, <laughs> score several points. But I have no doubt that one of us will, of course, have placed Deep Impact at number one in our list. And if people want to go somewhere and speculate about which one of us that might be, where might they go to do that, Ian? Well, one place they could go to talk about the fact that the following year there was lots of movies about giant rocks heading towards Earth would be our Facebook page, uh, which you can find on Facebook forward slash Revenge of the 80s Kids. And that's 80s as in numbers, so 80s. Uh, please go there and like our page. It is our community hub. We put up links to our podcast there, as well as links we find interesting. But uh, podcasts are what it's all about. And for those who want to point your web browser towards 80s Kids, and that's 80s as in letters, so E-I-G-H-T-I-E-S-Kids.podomatic.com, please go there and subscribe to our podcast using the podcast aggregator of your choice or download your PC for dark reasons of your own. Uh, but this is only where our most recent episodes can be found. For the legacy of our podcasts, you must go to... Uh, LeoStableford.com, where you can find a full suite of past podcasts that will soon include uh, one podcast for every year from 1975 right up till uh, the year 2000. But uh, some of those are still on the fresh list, of course. And indeed, there are occasionally other articles and other things that I deem uh, noteworthy that have been put up on the blog. And, and if people wish some sort of visual accompaniment to such uh, vocal stylings. Where might they go, Justin? 
Um, you can find um, examples of my work at uh, justinwyatt.deviantart.com, um, where yeah, I regularly update various bits and pieces I'm, I'm doing. And Sue, if people want to find your essay about uh, why uh, Pulp Fiction is the only real film that anyone ever needs to see in their entire life. They'll be lucky. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> so, Welcome uh, to an alternate universe, really. Not because I hate Pulp Fiction, but because, you know, I don't particularly deal with people online. No, so there we go. A, a, an approximate number of possibly seven films left, seeing as one has already fallen to the embarrassing noise. I am, um, I am very glad that Justin puts um, The Fifth Element on there, because it would make my top ten. It, it yeah. just got pushed out for me as well, so I'm but, glad Yes, but now it is a whole week of speculation for 80s kids fans, all six of you, <laughs> until we come back once more with our top two films of the 90s, at which point the 90s will be done, so you may indeed stick a fork in it. But for now, bye-bye. See ya. Farewell. Bye. now we may take a pause.